Good afternoon all and welcome to this book at lunchtime event on commemorative modernisms, women writers, death and the First World War, written by Dr. Alice Kelly. My name is Professor Wes Williams and I am the director here at Torch. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Alice Kelly today to speak about her new book and also on the panel are Professor Michael Whitworth, Professor Jay Winter and Dr. Laura Rattray who will be chairing the discussion this lunchtime. It's a great pleasure to be here to introduce the second Book at Lunchtime of this academic year. Book at Lunchtime is Torch's flagship event series, taking the form of more or less weekly bite-sized book discussions with a range of commentators. Please do take a look at the website and newsletter for the full program. I'll start proceedings today with a few words of introduction to the book and why we've chosen it for one of our Book at Lunchtime sessions. Commemorative Modernisms offers a new way of thinking about modernist writing by being the first sustained study of women's literary representations of death and the culture of commemoration that underlies both British and American modernism. Drawing on international archival research and previously neglected writing by women in the war zones and at home, as well as the marginalized writings of well-known authors, this book, both demonstrates the intertwining, intertwining of literary modernism, war and material and memorial culture and extends our understanding of the canon of modernist writing more generally. In a moment, I will hand over to Laura Rattray who will introduce the book more fully as well as the rest of the panel. This will be followed by a brief reading by Alice from the book. Afterwards, our commentators will present their thoughts on the book approaching it from their particular disciplines. We'll then give Alice the chance to respond to some of the points raised before entering into what promises to be a fascinating discussion. The event will conclude with questions from you, the audience. So please do add them to the chat box function as we go along and I'll moderate a question and answer session towards the end of our hour. All that's left for me now then is to thank you all for coming and to introduce our chair. Laura Rattray is reader in American literature at the University of Glasgow and director of the Glasgow Centre for American Studies. Welcome, Laura. She's teaching and research interests in modern American literature and culture, women's writing and gender, editing and publishing history. In 2016, she founded the Transatlantic Literary Women series, funded by the British Association for American Studies and US Embassy Small Grants Programme. Publications include 21st Century Readings of Tender is the Night, co-edited with William Blazek, the new Edith Wharton series, co-edited with Jennifer Haytock, and the unpublished writings of Edith Wharton. While her new monograph, Edith Wharton and Genre, Beyond Fiction, is published by Palgrave Macmillan. Welcome, Laura, once again, and over to you now for the rest of the next part of the session, at least. Thank you. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here today sharing the discussion of Dr. Alice Kelly's hot off the press new book, Commemorative Modernisms, Women Writers, Death and the First World War, a beautifully written, broad ranging study that puts women writers at the heart of its investigation. And it's my privilege to introduce Dr. Kelly and our speakers. Um, Dr. Kelly is a part-time lecturer in American literature at the University of Sussex and also the communications officer at the Rothermere American Institute at the University of Oxford. And after her PhD at Cambridge and a Fox Fellowship at Yale University, um, she initially joined everyone at Torch in 2015 as a woman in the humanities writing fellow before becoming the Harmsworth Junior Research Fellow at the Rothermere American Institute. Her research focuses on 20th century literature and cultural history in Britain and America. And as well as commemorative modernisms, Alice has published a critical edition of Edith Wharton's First World War reportage, Fighting France, and essays on modernist and First World War literature. She's held a Remark Fellowship at New York University. She's also been a British Academy rising star for her interdisciplinary seminar series, which many of us know, cultures and commemorations of war. And in 2015, she set up the Torch Academic Writing Group, still going strong today in a virtual format. Professor Michael Whitworth is a professor of modern literature and culture 
at the University of Oxford. He's published extensively on Virginia Woolf with his most recent work, an edition of Virginia Woolf's Night and Day for Cambridge University Press. His previous publications include Einstein's Wake, Relativity, Metaphor and Modernist Literature and chapters on Oliver Lodge's science writing. And he's currently working on a project concerning science, poetry and specialization in the early 20th century. And finally, Jay Winter is the Charles J. Still Professor of History Emeritus at Yale University. He's a specialist on World War I and its impact on the 20th century. And previously, Jay taught at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, the University of Warwick, the University of Cambridge and Columbia University. In 20, 2001, he joined the faculty of Yale. And he's the author or co-author of 25 books, including Socialism and the Challenge of War, Ideas and Politics in Britain, Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning, The Great War in European Cultural History, and most recently, War Beyond Words, Languages of Remembrance from the Great War to the Present. And I'm now going to invite Alice, Dr. Alice Kelly, um, who I believe is going to give a reading from her book, Commemorative Modernism. So if I can pass over to you, please, Alice. Thank you. So thank you very much, Laura. Thank you very much to Talks Torch Oxford for hosting this event and to my three brilliant panelists, um, not just for participating today, but for their encouragement, their advice and their support of this project over the many years that I've been working on it. Um, support that's ranged from reading chapters to mentoring to writing many, many reference letters for fellowships and jobs. So thank you very much. I'm gonna begin at the beginning of the book and read from the first few pages and I will show some of the images I include in the book while I read. Introduction, a culture surcharged with death. One of the key questions of modern literature was the problem of what to do with the war dead. In March, 1915, just eight months into the First World War, in a paper delivered in Vienna, Sigmund Freud presciently noted that, quote, we cannot maintain our former attitude towards death and have not yet discovered a new one. Freud expressed a common sentiment that the ongoing war had already fundamentally changed the ways that people thought about death. The accompanying questions of how to bury, memorialize and grieve the dead began as soon as the war itself did in August 1914 and would continue long into the post-war period. This book is about the ways that women writers wrote about death during and after the First World War. It examines the impact of the vast unanticipated mortality on literary representations of death in British and American writing during and immediately after the war. It considers the particular role that women writers played in enacting, rehearsing and mediating the crisis in attitude towards death caused by the war while it was still ongoing and in that post-war period. The major premise of the book is that the extent and nature of the death toll changed the way that death was represented in literature. What Catherine Mansfield referred to as a change of heart in regard to Virginia Woolf's 1919 novel, Night and Day. A second premise is that the unprecedented war losses and the subsequent cultures of both private memorialization and public commemoration are a crucial yet overlooked context for literary development in this period, including but not limited to modernism. So this book argues then for the intertwining of modernist war and memorial culture, suggesting that much of what we call modernist experimentation in terms of death can be traced to its specific socio-historical wartime and post-war context. The writers I examine here wrote death within a range of genres, some predominantly realist, some decidedly more modernist, and others working on a scale somewhere in between. Rather than radically redefining these terms, my argument extends and refines the concepts as understood in recent scholarship. The texts I examine include works by writers of different ages, classes, and nationalities, accounts and memoirs by British and American nurses, including Enid Bagnold, Ellen N. Lamott, and Mary Borden, 
works by Edith Wharton, an American writer living in France from 1911. Here she is in the war zones. The New Zealander Catherine Mansfield and the American HD Hilda Doolittle, who both spent most of their adult lives in Europe and the British author Virginia Woolf. On the way, I also touch on texts by Rudyard Kipling, Rose Macaulay, E.M. Forster, Jean Rhys, Christopher Isherwood and Elizabeth Bowen. I focus my discussion on predominantly Anglo-American women writers. The American writers I discuss here lived in Europe. Writers from elsewhere, such as Mansfield and Rhys, made Europe their home. My geographical focus is therefore predominantly European and specifically British, but in bringing these writers together, I have kept in mind their particular national literary traditions, histories and commemorative cultures. Modernist culture in the heart of the modern period, roughly 1910 to 1930, was inherently a war culture, and the study of First World War literature is necessarily historicist and interdisciplinary. My primary source is a literary text, novels, memoirs, short stories, letters, diaries, manuscript drafts, and newspapers and magazine articles. I read these fictional and non-fictional texts as war writing, produced in the context of total war, which constitutes their shared subject matter or subtext, whether explicitly or implicitly. I simultaneously draw on the visual and material cultures of memorialization, from photographs and paintings to break the newsletters and memorial volumes. This was, as HD wrote to the poet Marianne Moore in 1917, a culture surcharged with death. And now I'll just jump to the very end of the text. Many of these women writers lived long lives after, their, after the war ended in 1918. Many of the nurses I examine in the first chapter married in the post-war period and had families. Wharton stayed in France after the war, producing one more explicit war novel, A Son at the Front, um, in 1923 about parental and civilian grief and dying in 1937 in her home in the countryside. Mansfield died young in 1923 as her talent was at its height. HD lived until 1961, writing and rewriting the story of her war losses in multiple forms. Wolfe continued to write about the war in the late 1920s and 30s before she took her own life in 1941. We wonder how much their wartime experiences and losses continue to preoccupy these writers in those later decades. The numerous men the nurses remembered, Mansfield's brother, Wharton's nephew, HD's brother and her baby, Wolfe's brother-in-law, and the ghosts of fellow writers and artists, Rupert Brooke, Henri Gaudier-Breschka, Frederick Goodyear. When the peace negotiations were concluded and when life seemed to move on, when the 1920s moved into the 1930s and another war became more and more likely, all these personal and broader losses must have stood out all the more. So I'll stop there and hand over to the panel. Well, thank you so much, Alice. Um, and for what we're going to do now, I'm going to comment briefly and then hand over to Professor Whitworth and then to Professor Jay Winter. And congratulations on this book, Alice. I've been uh, fortunate enough to hear some of the research in progress over, over the years. I remember you standing in a field next to a trench, <laughs> giving a fantastic um, presentation as we prayed that it wasn't going to, to rain. And I think many people in the audience will have seen your Times Literary Supplement article on that wonderful, wonderful work you've done on Wharton's story, Field of Honour, which had gone overlooked by generations of, of scholars. And I think the impressive range of genres that you consider with this text, and also the painstaking archival research, research in the Imperial War Museum with those nursing narratives, the Yale Center for British Art, the visual and material culture, and we got some indication of that with those beautiful slides and at the Beinecke in the Wharton archives and others. And I really wanted to bring in the structure of the book as well. I love the way you do that. The first half of the book, Death in Proximity, really examining those representations of death in writing by those who witnessed death close up, firsthand, including the writing of nurses. And you also place Edith Wharton in that section. So you're beginning with texts written when the war is still ongoing and suggest that the proximity in which the author experiences the war dead 
influenced her mode of representation. And then that second part of your book, Grief at a Distance, exploring the responses of those largely removed from the, the war zones who didn't witness the death firsthand. And these writers, you suggest, are more likely to turn to abstract imaginative modes. And one of the great take-homes of the book for me um, was the way in which you suggest that literature written under conditions of war and without the knowledge of when this war was going to end provides some of the most generically and linguistically experimental examples of First World War writing. Um, and as a Wharton scholar, it's perhaps no surprise <laughs> that the chapter I particularly was a particular highlight for me was your intervention on Wharton as a, a war writer. And it's a very important intervention, reading Wharton as a war writer and reading her alongside writers that we don't normally place her with, arguing very persuasively that we should not be undervaluing um, that aspect of her body of work. Um, you point out that we've often focused on Wharton's relief work and it's an extraordinary what she does there and founding hostels and sanitaria, industrial scale funding, fundraising, helping refugees, organizing workshops for women who are out of work by the war, making those five trips to the front line in 1915 and writing about them in magazines and newspapers, calling for American intervention uh, in the war. And it's an interesting case, I think, that you, you highlight that Wharton is a generation older than, than many of the writers that you look at um, in, in this text, but still very much involved. And the way in which she sees, or appears to see the war in black and white um, terms, the fight between good and evil, civilization, and the descent into to barbarity. And you remind us that through all of this, she continues to write, and there's this very significant body of work produced during this period, work that um, is often dismissed as propaganda. And Wharton could certainly hold and sustain that tremolo note, um, but this book invites us um, to look again at her, her war work. And for those who haven't read the book yet, um, Alice focuses on a series of articles that would be published in Scribner's magazine and the Saturday Evening Post, and then collected as Fighting France, published in 1915. Um, a Story Coming Home, again 1915, and the, that unpublished, previously unknown story, in fact, The Field of Honour. And I think what Alice, what you do in that chapter, Alice, we really see Wharton responding with all of her skills as a writer. And you point to her seizing this new subject matter that we, she gives us an early impression of war. She's writing about this almost as soon as the war begins. Those Scribner articles in particular come very early. And here in Alice Kelly's study, we see a Wharton who's moving between literary genres, who's playing with conventions, and it beautifully complicates lingering notions, and they really are lingering notions, of Wharton as a jingoistic propagandist. And this book demonstrates the literariness, the complexity, the subtlety of her work during this period, um, which is generally overlooked. For example, um, there's a, a fascinating reconsideration of the atrocity story, the revenge narrative in Alice's reading of Coming Home. And Alice sees in this writing distinct moments of, of anxiety, of apprehension, unease concerning the war dead. And all of those readings that we get um, from Alice in that chapter undermine the straightforwardly propagandist um, statements that were expressed directly elsewhere. We see writing that betrays those anxieties about the justification for war death, about the treatment of the dead. And what we see is a really strong case that when it comes to Wharton as a war writer, we need to, to look again. And as I say, I think it's a really important, one of many important interventions that we get uh, in that book. So those are my brief comments to open, and I'm now going to hand over to Professor Whitworth, if I may, over to you. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to, to 
speaker of the session and um, so thank you to Alice, thank you to Torch for hosting it. It's um, an amazingly powerful um, work I found, um, very powerful uh, material handled in a way that acknowledges the, the suffering uh, of soldiers and of um, those surrounding them uh, and the nurses and so forth, um, but that does so in a way that also keeps discourse and um, linguistic playfulness in sight, um, and that does so also in a way that seems ethically right in relation to the, uh, the, the people involved. And that's uh, you know, one of the, the threads that I found absolutely compelling running through it. Um, uh, and there's also, and I think Laura's already alluded to this, a really fascinating range of, of materials, um, with manuscripts and letters and memoirs, as well as um, more, if you like, conventionally formed fiction, both in, in realist and in more experimental modes. Um, and that those are things I found um, really exciting, really exciting mix of, 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 of works being, being brought together. And also in, in HD, thinking about the way that film or um, popular song might be kind of spliced into this reworks. Um, so that's, uh, I mean, that raised um, for me Kind of interesting questions about, and, and that is also written elsewhere. I think it's in the Edinburgh um, Handbook or Companion, isn't it, on, on um, letters and written some really powerful work elsewhere that, that overlaps partly with the Mansfield chapter, but uh, has, um, you know, it, it, I would also recommend to, uh, to anybody watching this. Um, and that raised for me, I suppose, questions about literature and literariness, which, which Laura has again already touched on in relation to, to Wharton, um, whether yeah, whether our conventional categories of the literary um, need to be expanded to take in things like memoir, and because you're often looking at um, works that have only, I suppose, through the work of feminist recovery in particular, have been allowed into literary studies, but aren't necessarily perceived as canonical genres. If you're thinking about some memoir, I suppose, in particular, and letter, there is a, there's a critical discourse surrounding letters, but there's um, not really, I think, well-established or, or canonical ways of, of of dealing with them. Um, and so, yeah, my, my question is a little bit perhaps unfocused or my, my, my observation is that uh, how how does literariness sit in um, amongst these different genres and, and modes of writing, if you like? Um, and um, do the kinds of work such as memoirs and letters that uh, aren't so often treated have a, a distinctive power or is that power uh, an extension of the kind of um, writerly ability to um, frame and quote and distance discourse uh, that we can also see in more conventional works such as say Mansfield's short stories or so forth. So there, I think a whole set of kind of interesting questions about the uh, the power of literature to interrogate uh, official discourse and that's one of the threads that's running through your book isn't it that um, that sense of um, propagandistic accounts of, of war um, being subtly and, and sometimes not so subtly kind of questioned and probed and twisted and refracted by the, uh, the works we're looking at. Um, and there's also, I guess, questions about modernism um, for, and modernism's relation to, to war. Um, you mentioned in your, Alison, your, your talk about uh, there being a war culture um, surrounding um, modernism. And I mean, a long time ago, uh, Shari Benstock, I think 1984 piece, The Letters in Paris, um, in, in I guess a context of a very male modernist canon at that stage in, in the history of modernist studies, um, it comes out quite strongly against um, centering the war and sort of says uh, that we, we're seeing so much of modernism or critics at that time are seeing so much of modernism as um, as a post-war phenomenon and that that um, displaced women writers and. Clearly, there's been so many changes in the canon that um, those comments are while important in their time and not uh, you know, really at stake any longer. But nevertheless, I suppose I was kind of interested in um, how modernism and war fit together for you more generally. Um, whether, because clearly modernism is going on before the war, so we can't, um, that kind of argument that one sometimes finds um, in <laughs> undergraduate essays or in kind of very simplified accounts and just you know clearly that's not going to hold but this, I suppose a, a subtler question of um, does the war change the course of modernism um, does the war change the course of female authored modernism does it change the 
opportunities for women writers in relation to, to modernist experimentation. Um, and uh, there's that comment, Alison, you quote from Alison Booth towards the end about um, modernism being strangely haunted by the dead. Um, and I suppose that raises the question, was it always, was it already haunted before 1914, or is that a, a 1914 kind of um, development? And and then kind of questions about is modernist fiction haunted differently from say middlebrow or non-modernist fiction? Um, is modernist fiction better equipped to deal with that haunting? You know, because it can make use of devices. Well, any literature can make use of these devices, but it um, makes much more of illusion and makes much more of um, complex time frames and time schemes and so forth. Does that um, mean that it's, in a sense, um, it has the uh, the affordances of the kind of the equipment to to deal with what happens from 1914 onwards. Um, so, and I suppose, and what also interests me in the backdrop to this, particularly in terms of the extended um, range of, of works you're dealing with here, I suppose, is a question of, uh, do you want to admit uh, memoirs or Mansfield's letters as modernist works for experimentation, um, or does it not matter that much whether they're modernist or not? Uh, so, yeah, sorry, it's a whole kind of stream of kind of questions that your, your book set off with me. Uh, but it's, uh, I, mean, I hope that gives some testimony to just, you know, how exciting and, and fascinating I, I find it. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, I'll hand over to Jay and then we're coming back to you, Alice. Um, yes, Jay. Alice, thank you so much uh, for asking me to join in this discussion of uh, your important book and uh, also for continuing, uh, I think now a uh, several generations long successful drive to break down the foolish barrier between literary studies and historical studies. Uh, some of the greatest uh, contributors to our understanding of the cultural history of the First World War, Paul Fussell, Samuel Hines, are professors of literature. And the idea that history and literature are, uh, um, shall we say, in dialogue, constant dialogue, is something that we owe to them and that you have carried on in, I think, a very remarkable way. So I congratulate you on that. <clears throat> the second thing I, I want to congratulate you on, and it follows uh, some of the remarks we've just heard, uh, from Michael, um, you have, I think, the strength of recognizing that the war didn't end in 1918. That the distinction between war and post-war is something we uh, uh, we have constructed because it's simpler that way. But the lived experience of violence carried on. Uh, and I, I, in particular, I want to congratulate you on the notion that the Great War um, was uh, encapsulated in a greater war that extended at least till 1924. And we can't read the wasteland without understanding that the post-1918 period is drenched in violence and mass death. Now, one area I would like to draw you on there is perhaps something we all uh, are more sensitive to now than a year ago. And that is <clears throat> mass death included the influenza epidemic. Um, and it is a a backdrop to the distinction between pre-1914 and post-1914. Uh, the haunting of mass death requires millions of corpses, and in particular of the young, and that epidemic, in contrast to the current one, uh, targeted uh, strong adult uh, adults, males, maybe more than females, but in that case, I think the, the evidence isn't conclusive, but it was devastating uh, for uh, young males uh, who were in army uh, service during the war and after after it. Uh, so I was wondering whether your story of mass death might uh, uh, be uh, um, developed or have you thought about developing it in terms of the influenza epidemic? It's a question that I think uh, is important uh, in your overall theme. Now, the second uh, area I'd, I'd like to draw you out on, uh, I, I thought it was extremely important the way in which you uh, showed that not only uh, commemorative cultures uh, framed the development of literary representations, but literary representations framed the development of contemporary cultures, uh, that there's a two-way uh, dialogue going on. Uh, it isn't uh, necessarily in one way, but in that two-way dialogue, I'd like to draw you out more on the Anglo-American comparison 
or put it the other way around, the British-American comparison. Um, the United States did not suffer mass death in the First World War, aside from the influenza epidemic. The United States suffered a bloody nose in the First World War, 50,000 combat deaths. That's about the same as the French army in two weeks of 1914. 50,000 men died of the flu. To what extent uh, are we actually justified in talking about Anglo-American uh, representations in, shall we say, modernist, the modernist uh, movement, uh, or what I would call American Anglophiles like T.S. Eliot have become to all intents and purposes uh, entirely British, uh, rather than American. Because uh, one of the things that has struck me my whole life is how ignorant Americans have been of the First World War. Uh, and the, the reason for that is that it's not embedded in family history. And the reason it's not embedded in family history is that the numbers, thank God for the Americans, were relatively small. The United States was in the war for only 18 months. So I wonder about whether the concept of the national character of modernism is something you might uh, you might think about in a more specific way. And let me say that this is what Fussell did too. Fussell's book, the great book, The Great War and Modern Memory, is really about London and the home counties. It's not about England, and it's certainly not about Scotland or Wales. Now, to what extent can we say that the missing, the silences in your book, which have always been there, are about Ireland, which after all knew about death in an entirely different way and knew about it longer in that post-war period leading up to 1923, first the British, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, troubles, uh, and then the Civil War itself. So what, what I wonder about, um, uh, I think is important, uh, is the, the national assumptions uh, that one takes into an analysis of modernist writing. Uh, is it possible to say that the American side of this um, is not related to American commemorative practices, but to British commemorative practices or French commemorative practices. But American ones to this day are threadbare compared to British and, uh, and French ones. They can't even collect enough money now to put up a First World War memorial on the mall in Washington. They have been trying for three years. I know that because I've been trying to help and it can't be one single cor American corporation could do this if they wanted to, but it's not part of the cultural history of the United States. It may be in the future, but for the moment not. So my, my question to you simply is, is this an English story that has to be, as it were, separated from an American one, uh, while admitting the importance of Americans who make, as I did, England my home for, despite my accent for so many years and my children and so on uh, as evidence of it. And the final, uh, final point I, I, I wanted to, um, to ask you about is, uh, is France. Uh, now, the, we know that the, the French um, side of this story was of an absolutely dreadful bloodbath. Uh, twice as many French soldiers died as, as those died in British forces. And that's much, much more than, than in American uh, forces. But, to what extent did French commemorative culture have uh, a bearing? Because the, what's really very interesting is how deep the village patterns of remembrance are in both Britain and France, probably more than anywhere else in the world. Britain and France have a decentralized culture of commemoration where you go to the village square and you see the names, the multiple names of the individual families. Uh, is this something that is transnational that the writers that you looked at who were certainly very sensitive to the question of mass death, found in French culture something which, Brexit aside, uh, brought Britain uh, and France together in an embrace that lasted throughout all of the 20th century and maybe even into this one. So all I want to do is to tell you how much I, I enjoyed uh, your book. Uh, it is an important uh, and I think exciting uh, uh, contribution uh, to the literature. And I look forward to many years of drawing you out further and seeing the development of your scholarship in the future. Thank you, Alice. Thank you so much, Jay. Well, I'm going to hand over to you, Alice, there, if you'd like to uh, respond to it, some of those comments, please. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for all those comments. I'm so grateful for all those really detailed readings of the book. Um, that was so broad ranging. So I'm going to try and just respond individually, very briefly, to each of you. 
Um, Laura, I'm glad you like the structure of the book. It took me quite a long time to come up with that. Um, I think there is a difference in terms of whether you wrote about death, whether these writers wrote about death from a position of proximity in the war zones or from far away. I align that with a kind of realist mode of writing about death um, using traditional modes. Uh, if you were close to the war zones, using the modes of the Victorians, really, uh, and the Edwardians, graveyards and cemeteries, um, the deathbed, the Victorian deathbed scene, and those who are further away from the war using necessarily imaginative modes, turning to more abstract, more modernist modes. Someone like HD, as Michael mentioned, turning to the cinema or um, using her own body to depict her stillbirth as a war loss. So turning to much more abstract modes. Um, I also, uh, yeah, one, one point that came out for me while I was writing this was how experimental the wartime writing is. I'm glad you picked up on that moment. Um, writing about a war while a war is still ongoing is a very, very different move from writing about it much later. And previously, we've thought about the war books boom of sort of 1928, the Arnus Mirabilis, as being the sort of moment of memoir. But actually, um, I was very interested in the, the war writing that comes out while the war is still ongoing. And actually, just thinking about our current cultural moment, um, watching attempts to memorialize COVID and the coronavirus um, while this very while we're in the moment, so trying to commemorate before something has ended, um, it's obviously they're very different contexts. But it's it's been very interesting to watch that same memorialising urge without knowing exactly what we're memorialising. Um, about Wharton, I think you've said everything we wanted to say. Really, I mean, Wharton um, to me is a fascinating writer. She was so um, versatile, so skilled at writing. And it frankly frustrated me to read criticism of her, you know, in our wonderful field of Wharton scholarship that dismissed that important that important moment in her uh, where she's really um, bringing all of her skills as a novelist to the cause of propaganda. But as that chapter argues, there are also moments where we see Wharton being uncertain. She's a pro, she was a pro-war writer, but there are moments where she sort of um, betrays herself and betrays her uh, nerve as well as writes that uh that uncertainty into her fiction in sometimes deliberate mode so i think that writing is really important that wartime writing for wharton and it's important to recognize that she was writing about war um you know from 1914 to 1919 and then she suddenly turns and writes the book that she's most famous for the age of innocence and that in itself is a really fascinating moment of um deliberate amnesia you know she calls it a momentary escape where she turns back to 1870s Paris that in itself that famous novel of hers is itself a mode of war writing in a different guise I think um to Michael's really interesting arguments I was so fascinated that you brought up the question of something being ethically right how do we read things um in ethically right ways I'm glad you think I handled the tone right there were numerous moments, especially when I was writing about the nurses um, and looking through diaries in the Imperial War Museum where a nurse was on a hospital ship writing clearly under pressure, writing, you know, both sides of the pad page and then up and down the page because of no space, um, clearly exhausted, whether you can apply the tropes of literary analysis to that kind of text. Um, and I really sort of went back and forth on that. And I think it is illuminating. It is useful to think a nurse might be turning back to a Victorian deathbed scene she's read in a novel in order to make sense of the experience that she herself is in at that moment, trying to deal with the deaths of numerous men. So I think it, um, it I'm, I'm glad to hear that you also had that kind of ethical quandary. Um, I'm gonna move on to, I think, the question of letters and literariness. Um, I love war letters, I have to say, they've turned out to be something I'm very fond of. In Mansfield's writing, I, the entire chapter is about Mansfield's letters, really. There's some things about the stories, but I thought I'd write about her war stories, and I ended up writing entirely about her letters. And there are a few reasons for that, one, one of which is the kind of socio-historical element of letters in wartime, that this was an epistolary war because of the, um, the Butler Education Acts of the 1870s. Many, many more people were writing letters in the First World War. It was a, the first kind of literary war. And, um, you know, letters played a hugely important role in morale. Um, so, you know, there were 12.5 million letters going from Britain to 
the Western Front every week during the war. And Mansfield is a really interesting inversion of that because she wasn't um, the person at home, the woman writing to her man at war. Murray, her uh, partner and later husband, was in London working for the war office. She was in the south of France um, trying to find a cure for her tuberculosis that would kill her five years after the war. And what we see is her total reliance on letters as a means of survival. She sees them as a kind of marker of survival that having a letter back from Murray means she is still living. Um, so the letter is really interesting. She also, in terms of um, whether or not it's literary, I make the case in that chapter that those marginal writers by modernists are actually where we might see the most interesting modernist experimentation. So in her um, stories, we see some explicit stories about the war, but it's actually in her letters that we see political Mansfield writing her real her actual responses to something like the Peace Day celebrations of 1919, which she was horrified by, or her reactions to the death of her brother in 1915, or her rewriting um, accounts of air raids in Paris to multiple recipients and changing the way she does this according to who she's writing to. So those letters give her a kind of space for modernist experimentation and playfulness. She embraced the war, at least initially, as um, a new subject matter. And she played around with the metaphors and the language and the diction it gave her. And so with those air raids, she might describe them as horrifying in a letter to one person. In another letter, one I love to Kateliansky, she says, the nights are full of moons and stars and big zeppelins. Isn't it romantic? You know, she moves into a completely different genre. And we can see her linguistic playfulness. As, as that goes on, it becomes darker. But um, in general, I would say, absolutely, I think the letters, we should be considering them in literary terms. They're really important spaces of experimentation. Um, does the war change the course of female authored modernism? And how do modernism and war fit together? Um, I, I read a lot of criticism of modernism, and I'll try not to speak for too long, um, where modernist critics may say, yes, the war was important, but they don't really go into all the material, social, historical elements of how actually that war dominated the culture, how it saturated the culture at the time, from paper rationing affecting modernist magazines, to the language that people were using, to the frames of reference they had, to the fact that people weren't always having enough to eat, so they were hungry. I mean, all of those things affected the ways they wrote. So I think um, we should be looking more deeply. We should be trying to um, really historicize what, what the war meant for modernist literature. I'm not making the claim that modernism wasn't already in swing by the time that the war began. It was, it definitely was. And we see modernist experimentation happening before the war. Um, what is so interesting to me, I think, is that moment of post-war, um, that conflation of two different moments. We have the moment of post-war experimentation, 1919 to about 1923, uh, which coincides with this moment of mass public commemoration. We have the erection of the temporary cenotaph in 1919, which becomes the permanent cenotaph, which is, you know, 100 years old next month. So that goes up in 1920, the burial of the unknown warrior, the start of the poppy appeal. All of this context of mass public commemoration coincides with those modernist texts, those canonical modernist texts we've heard about from Jay, like The Wasteland, as well as really important texts like um, Mansfield's The Garden Party. These are all coming out of this moment of mass commemoration. Um, the question of whether modernist fiction is better equipped to deal with the war then say Middlebrow, arguably yes, in the, in the ways it um, enables abstraction, the way it um, brings up different perspectives, um, multiple ways. And I think that's a longer conversation, but I think that's a really fascinating question. Um, I'm gonna move on to Jay's points very quickly. Um, Jay, I'm, I'm really glad you think the history and literature is working well. I get that from you, I get that from Samuel Hines, I get that from Paul Fussell. Um, I'm, I think I'm very, I'm very happy if that's working. And I like your idea of the greater war, the fact that the war continued. So even though there are kind of superficial distinctions in my book between wartime and post-war, I do say a number of times, you know, the war continued for many of these women. And the final section of the book, the kind of afterword is called Modernism's Ghosts. And it's about how women continued to be haunted by these ghosts and to dream of these people for many, many years to come. Um, and that to me is the most moving section of the book, really. 
And um, the question of the flu is a really interesting one, particularly in our current contemporary moment. You know, how much does the flu affect us and stop the whole world? Um, yes, I, I, I'm fascinated by why it doesn't hold a bigger part in the cultural history of death, why it doesn't hold a bigger take on our cultural imagination. Um, it's slightly anomalous this year that it, we may have heard of it because it's been in the newspapers as a analog to our current condition. But up until then, not many people talked about the flu or remembered the flu. And some of the reasons for that I talk about in the introduction, one of the most important things I think was timing. The fact that it came right at the end of the war, it came in three waves starting in 1918, going until 1920, killed an enormous number of people. But actually, um, people conflated it with with the deaths they already heard of with the men at the front. And they were sort of exhausted, I think. They were war fatigued. And for them, those deaths just became another version of war death. Um, also the fact there isn't much of a cultural legacy of the flu until really 1939 with Catherine Ann Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider. It didn't invoke this mass outpouring of literature in the way that the war did. But it really deserves much more study than it's ever received, I think. The question of British and American culture of commemoration, I think you're quite right. And I think um, one potential frustration for me of the book is that they're very different commemorative cultures. And it became apparent to me in writing it that I wasn't gonna be able to deal with the American home front and the fact that it's, it's a key difference that the British couldn't bring back their war dead from 1916. The Americans could choose to return their war dead, to repatriate their war dead which um, is a very, very different causes and provokes a different way of mourning, a different mode of memorialization. I'm actually writing on um, the American culture of memorialization right now because it's fascinating to me that uh, in, in the American context and American memory, uh, the First World War is completely eclipsed by the, the Civil War and the Second World War in Vietnam. But actually, if you're in American society, the war is everywhere. You know, you can find a war memorial in Oregon in the shape of Stonehenge. You can find road signs in LA that refer to First World War battles. You can find, you know, um, the person who wrote over there in the center of Times Square. It's really fascinating that there are all these markers of the war, but it doesn't feed into the public imagination. So it's a really astute comment. And I think it, American First World War culture is something that, again, deserves further study, really. And the, the Americans I talk at, about in the book are really um, Americans in Europe, as you mentioned, HD and Wharton. Uh, the final question about France, I'm, I think I'm gonna hand over to you there, Jay. You're, you're the person who knows more about France. Um, but the, I'm struck by the comment about the villages. I mean, the localized culture of commemoration that developed was very similar. And I hope did um, result in some of those partnerships between British and French towns that we, that live on today, the legacy of that. that. So thank you everyone for those comments. Thank you so much. And I'm gonna invite uh, Wes back in here and the audience, if you have any more questions, we've got some coming in the chat. Um, please do, do ask them in the chat and we'll try to get through as, as many as possible through Wes. I don't know, Jay, did you want to pick up that point about France that Alice just raised? Well, yes, all right, I will pick it up because it strikes me as a form of the, what I would call the democratization of commemoration. Uh, both states are not important. What is important is civil society, is the local lives and the local communities of people in mourning. And that, that strikes me as extraordinarily different uh, from highly militarized, centralized states at war. The, the power of civil society to frame um, the culture of commemoration is, is something that unified Britain and France then and unifies it to this day. Thank you so much. Um, in fact, the question of the Frenchness or otherwise um, of commemoration is one of the questions that's been coming up in the, uh, one of the issues that has been coming up in the questions. Um, and um, on the, as well as the kind of Q&A chat that you can see, I have another chat going on where people are just saying, this is a great book, congratulations on the new book. And also Thank this you. is a great conversation. Thank you for bringing modernism into, into a whole new area, all three of you, all four of you, in fact. Um, so just time for a few questions here. I think the first, um, which sort of picks up on your last point there, Jay, if I may, which is the difference between a kind of private commemoration and official political discourse. So one of the questions that somebody asks is, 
Um, is that something you address explicitly in the book? So this is from somebody who hasn't read it yet, but is looking forward to doing so. Um, and if so, is it something that is inflected by gender in particular? And I think they're thinking about, or they say they're thinking about Jacob's room, for example, but one might choose a number of other examples. Um, Alice, is that something you want to address? The kind of question between the difference between the public and the private and the gendered dimension, <laughs> uh, not just public, political and the private and the gendered dimension of that question. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. That's something I talk about in, the, in chapter five of the book about post-war commemoration. So that moment of mass public commemoration is very interesting in that we have writers responding to what is happening on a political state-led level. So that's um, what I would argue is that the um, memorialization impulse is happening from 1914. So we see this, this drive to commemorate from very, very early. And that begins with the nurses in the first chapter trying to record in writing their individual men they've been witnessing dying and trying to give them some kind of um, justice, giving them some kind of memory in writing. Uh, the way I talk about it is that they use the Victorian deathbed scene to try and give a kind of um, meaning to these mass deaths that are occurring. And that for me is a key example of people trying to remember on an individual level. The nurses also talk about things like trying to um, plant uh, memorials for the men, temporary memorials before anything official has been established. And what happens in the British case in the British government is they realise they will have this enormous problem on their hands of how to bury the dead and how to commemorate the dead. And it takes them a number of years to catch up with that. They're trying to, to do it as soon as the war begins, but it takes them a number of years. And by 1919, they've been coming up with the ideas, now the war has finished, of how they will do that. And some of the ideas include um, the two-minute silence and the, the cenotaph, the, the, which becomes the temporary cenotaph in 1919, is so popular, it becomes permanent and is established on Armistice Day 1920. Um, the literature is really fascinating in this regard because it gives us an insight into individuals' responses. So the reading at the beginning of Chapter 5 is uh, Ma sorry, Virginia Woolf's response to the um, opening of the permanent cenotaph and how... Um, horrified she is by it and the kind of nationalistic discourses that are being pulled in and um, she's also reading every day about the um, the burial of the unknown warrior and what the unknown warrior represents um, to the British people and the way I read Jacob's room is that is a, an absolute um, response to the burial of the unknown warrior Jacob is the unknown warrior um, and that gives the text a, a different valence I think Thank you. I don't know if either of our other, any of our other speakers want to comment on this, uh, this question of the, of, the, of the private and the political or the gender dimension of it. One, one uh, two sentences. It's the absence of 50% of the men who died in the First World War of known graves. The artillery war is the basis of the haunting. 50% uh, of the men who died in British forces have no known graves. Uh, and this creates an, an enormous uh, field of anxiety in private commemoration. The public language departs, and the point that I think Alice just made is absolutely right. There's, there's a private world that is confronting an impossible question because the, it's not just that the men are gone, their bodies are completely gone. War mm -hmm. has turned from being a killing field to a vanishing act. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's something families have no way of, of, of coping with. Certainly states have no way of doing it, but it makes the private dimension much more important than the state dimension. Could I just mention one very quick response to that, which is Rudyard Kipling is a really fascinating instance here. Mm -hmm. I brought him in. Uh, yes, he's a male writer, but he's so interesting in this regard because he's very publicly involved with commemoration. He comes up with their names will live forevermore. You know, he chooses that. Um, he's very publicly involved in selling the new cemeteries to the to the British public. He writes something called The Graves of the Fallen, a pamphlet that's provided with the Times. But then, and that's 1919, in 1925, he writes The Gardener, which is a story all about a mother's loss for her, for his son who was missing. And so we have that kind of direct response of a public commemorator with a private response in writing. He's a very interesting case. In a way, that's already answering. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name right, sir. Bill Blazek um, has asked a question about whether this literature 
kind of writes about the impossibility of expressing the new nature of death. Um, and I'm, I'm very struck with Jay's idea that, that part of what we're what they're having to come to terms with is not having a body um, to commemorate. And, and the, the literature therefore finds ways of, of writing about ghosts, obviously, but also absent presences that, 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 that linger. Michael, I don't know if you want to come in on this question. I, I may be misreading your face. Uh, you're, you're, you're muted. Um, uh, no, it's okay. Yeah, I was oh. just um, looking, <laughs> trying to find something about water that she lived. So, yeah. Ah, okay. okay. Um, so another, if we shift slightly now, there's another question which, uh, or an, a, a series of questions which have to do with Wharton. Clearly there's a number of Wharton scholars interested here. Um, and um, one of them in a sense you've already answered, which is, uh, might one read the other non-war books, Summer, Morocco, Age of Innocence, through the lens of the war experiences? And it seems to me you've all effectively said, yes, these are all in some respect war books um, as well. Um, the other, um, a more sort of directed question, which is, um, Alice, do you consider the novella The Marne? Um, and if so, what do you say about it? Um, and I suppose a broader question coming out of that is, um, does one need to, I mean, if one takes your general proposition that the war informs all of Wharton's writings, um, even those bits where it's not obviously present, I mean, is that true of all of these writers who lived through this period, must one somehow uh, read the war into their continuing lives? Or is there a point at which one can sort of step away from it and say, I've dealt with that now, I'm now writing about something else? Yeah, really good questions. Um, the Marne is her 1918 text, it's a novella. Um, I didn't write about it in the chapter, I would have done if I had time. It's very interesting because some of the tactics that we see um, particularly her, the tactics we see in her war reported. So in Fighting France, she's talking about the substitution of buildings for bodies. That's the argument I read predominantly in that text. She often depicts destroyed buildings in lieu of bodies. And that makes sense with Wharton as an architectural historian. Wharton who'd written the book, The Decoration of Houses. She is depicting corporeal destruction through the destruction of buildings. Mm -hmm. And what happens in the Marne is she, that to me, those metaphors actually become less, they become more explicit. She makes that more explicit as she continues. I think it's also important to consider with that text, it's slightly more um, cliched in some ways. And I think she was intensely fatigued. You know, she was writing it at the end of the war. I do make the case that this writing is all of great literary value. I think the Marne is possibly of less interest than um, something like Fighting France but I'd love to talk further with other Wharton scholars about that because it's a text that deserves revisiting. And Wes's interesting question about should we read, be reading the war into all of this writing? I mean, obviously we should have limits, but I think it's interesting to think that when, some, when a writer wrote a death scene in 1925, it was very difficult, I think, for them to remove themselves entirely from this context of absolute mass death mm -hmm. that happened five years, seven years previously. And the fact that many of their compatriots were no longer there. Mm -hmm. So I would say, um, I've been thinking about this with COVID, you know, will we ever see mass the same way? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. These things leave long, long legacies, even if we're not aware of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, my question about how long the war lasts is partly as a 16th century, 17th century scholar, whereby, you know, one can read Racine as being about the Civil War, the 16th century Civil War. I mean, it, it, these things do last at least a generation, I would say, um, uh, when there's a kind of mass um, uh, involvement of, of people in the war. But that's, yeah, that's to bring in a whole other version of France into the story for a minute. Um, there's time, I think, for two or three more questions, one of which is there's been talk of women's, there's been little talk of women's poetry here. Um, now, it's a lot to ask you to write about poetry as well, <laughs> but I wondered if anybody on the on the panel um, thinks that, um, yeah, is, uh, is women's war poetry part of this story? Is, or is it a less present uh, feature than, you know, the stuff that, that one might have been brought up in British schools, at least, of, of war poetry as a very kind of male story? Um, I don't know if anybody wants to address that question. Okay, Laura first, then Michael. Yes. I'll, I'll be brief, Michael. I think with Wharton, again, it certainly is a part of the, 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 the story. And She's actually a prolific poet throughout her career, and that's 
something that we don't talk about too often, but she finds, she turns to poetry at moments of great emotional turbulence. So we do see quite a lot of poetry coming out again from Wharton, from, from the war. Some of them pretty much propaganda pieces as, as Alice has suggested, but others really complicating that, that, that picture and giving us pause for thought and making us, us think again. And partly as the war develops, um, those doubts, those anxieties become a more persistent voice there. Over to you, Michael. Thank you, Michael, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, really just a different way of posing the question, which is, is it that prose takes over some of those memorialising um, functions that poetry and the elegy had had? I mean, famously, Wolf, in relation to, to The Lighthouse, says, I need a new title, or shall I call it an elegy? Like, mm -hmm. If you think of a sort of advertising subtitle, To The Lighthouse, an elegy by Virginia Woolf. Um, and, you know, in a sense, this is, uh, other people have explored this, but I suppose I'm interested to ask Alice that because it was a question that sort of, that was bubbling up under my question about literariness, uh, you know, but uh, mm -hmm. is, is that how you view it? Um, yes, that the memoir moves into the prose forum, I, mm. I think it does, actually. I think people choose to memorialise in longer forms. Um, you know, initially it's sort of memorial volume, so the kind of privately published things that are coming out and Wolf and Leonard are printing memorial volumes for um, for Wolf's, for Leonard's brother on their on their press in the same time that they're printing Mansfield's Prelude. So there's this kind of interesting interaction of memorialization with modernist, modernism, new texts in modernism at the same time. Um, I didn't write about the poetry because I think it's a completely different genre and skill. And I think the poetry, although we still need to do more on women's poetry, um, I think that's for another scholar, but there are some very, very interesting examples. I, I'm thinking of something like Charlotte Muse, the Cenotaph, is doing a, a sort of very similar gesture to what Wolfe is doing when she's writing about the Cenotaph in her letters. So there's room for comparison, I think. Uh, perhaps one final question for now, at least, this conversation will clearly continue in in lots of different ways. Um, but that goes back to the question of location that with that, that sort of hovered over this whole discussion, really. Um, whether it's in terms of the national location that that Jay drew attention to, and and as a French scholar, I think of you know Pierre Nora's work and all the rest of it around and places of memory as well as your own. But the, the sort of national account of what what the war was, uh, right down to the village. So somebody's asked a question uh, about how important the village is um, in commemoration, both in terms of the, the, the villages in the US where there may be uh, in war memorials, um, which sort of paradoxically um, stand in relation to your proposition that actually it's not very much part of um, US culture, or of course, war memorials in British villages. Um, how important are villages in this writing? And does that mean that we have to rethink to some degree the geography of modernism as a kind of urban? I mean, maybe you're all doing that anyway, but um, I grew up with the idea that modernism with this kind of urban uh, form of writing, um, in fact, are villages vital to the modernist project? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And also just the idea of the local versus the national, I think is really fascinating. Um, uh, where was I going to start with that? There's so many thoughts that brings up. I mean, obviously, we have writers like Virginia Woolf still talking about those national moments of commemoration. So scenes set at the Cenotaph or scenes set at national points of um, commemoration or invoking national practices, such as the aeroplane that goes overhead in Mrs. Dalloway, the two minute silence, invoking those national modes. But what's really um, also key, as I think is coming up in the discussion, is local modes of memorialization. So I'm thinking of something like a text by Christopher Isherwood that should be better known called The Memorial, which is based around a local war memorial. That's a, you know, a key driving factor for the story. Um, I know there are many other instances of that in this writing, thinking on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. um, Jay, you're not, sorry, Jay, you're nodding your head here. Well, the reason why I do it is I think it's absolutely central uh, to Alice's interpretation that local war memorials, London doesn't have a war memorial for London. Paris doesn't have one or just invented one at Père Lachaise uh, two years ago. But local war memorials are the places where women get into the public visual narrative of the war. The, the mothers 
the widows, the sisters, the friends, all of those people, Vera uh, Britton has, has written about this quite extensively. These local places are not available in London. Then they're not available in Paris. Uh, they are available to integrate women into the narrative of war in ways that don't require nurses. They're everyone's story because it's the story of everybody's families. That, that's why I think the, the village is, is so critical. Uh, and the village is a place where we can see families in mourning. Cities are not, they're not so easily visible because they're so big. Uh, but your, your interpretation, Alice, I think is, is exactly right on the idea that the cultural convention bring women into the centrality of, uh, of the cultural history of the First World War. Once again, I congratulate you on making that point, which has been missed all too uh, readily in the past. Well, thank you, Jane. You put it much better than I could. Um, and the last, the last site that's interesting, I think, is those silent cities. So the pilgrimages that happen to the cemeteries and there's very, very moving writing from the twenties. Kipling's is one example of that or Mansfield's The Fly where a father that, you know, depicts a pilgrimage to these new silent cities, the new cemeteries on the Western Front. And that as a kind of localized site of mourning. Mm. I'm taking Jay's sites of memories there. Mm. Um, we're going to have to wind up soon, but I've, I'm conscious that Laura and Michael, you've been very uh, kind in stepping back and allowing others, including me, to ask questions. Do you have anything you wanted to add to the discussion by way of uh, conclusion? If not, it's fine. But for the moment, Michael, you're muted again. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so many small things I'd like to follow up, but I think uh, we'll, we'll save those for another time or uh, whatever. Thank you. Uh, okay, Laura. Huge congratulations, Alice. I think it's a, a wonderful book and a much needed book. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what's next. Thank you, everyone. Well, I think I can um, echo the huge congratulations um, that are coming in I've got you can't see the chat stuff that's going on alongside me as well as the the stuff that's in the um the Q&A it's clear that this book is um uh going to produce a whole range of other exciting conversations like this one um but it's also clear I think that in uh Michael Jay and Laura we've had some tremendous um interlocutors here to make really exciting sense of what Alice has done um so um this has been an exemplary book at lunchtime from Torch's perspective. So we think of Alice as one of our own in some sense in Torch because of the, the, the many different ways in which she's been connected. And I think it's just great um, that we've had this rich discussion here today. Um, uh, many people are saying huge congratulations to you all. Um, so I would like to also thank you all, thank all of our brilliant speakers today for a tremendous discussion, a generous discussion that opens up all sorts of uh, new uh, areas and, and ways uh, to explore a whole bunch of questions, you know, commemoration, gender, uh, the local, um, lots of really interesting uh, things uh, uh, to think about here. Um, before we disappear then, um, please join us everyone again, uh, same time next week for our next book at lunchtime, uh, when we do move back actually to 16th century France, um, Shipwreck in French Renaissance Writing, The Direful Spectacle uh, by Jennifer Oliver. Do check the Torch website to register for next week events and for others uh, later in the series. But for now, thanks once again to you all um, and um, goodbye. <laughs>